is Black Talk, where global black experts mix with local voices from the black community. Personal stories meet historical context, and black achievement is celebrated as we explore the realities of anti-black racism. Here are your co-hosts, Andy Knight and Zach Penda. Hi, I'm Andy Knight. Hi, I'm Zach Penda. Andy and I are delighted to have Sir Hilary Beckles as our guest on this episode of Black Talk. Sir Hilary Beckles is the Vice Chancellor of the University of the West Indies and the Chair of the CARICOM Reparations Commission. He is a Caribbean historian and a strong advocate for reparations for slavery. As you may have guessed from his title, in 2007, he was made a Knight of St. Andrew the highest honor in the Order of Barbados. Here's global expert, Sir Hilary Beckles. Sir Hilary, in your book on the first black slave society, Britain's barbarity time in Barbados, 1636 to 1876, published by the University of West Indies Press in 2016, you stated that everyone must understand the legacy of slavery and the enduring power dynamic before real change can actually take place. Can you help our audience make a link between the George Floyd moment, what we call the George Floyd moment, and the history and the legacy of slavery? Well, okay, um, well, we're all uh, rising up with triumph and uh, celebrating uh, Western modernity. The, the rise of the industrial culture, the development of, of urban civilization, the pedagogy of democracy and civil rights. So this is what we are celebrating here at the beginning of the 21st century. And we're looking back over the last 300 years and we are saying that human progress has been incredible. Uh, that uh, from what was historically described as the dark ages and the movement into this modernity of enlightenment and the rise of democracy, nation states, and the world that we currently occupy as citizens. There is a triumphalism around that achievement of humanity. But we have oftentimes lost sight of the fact that all of that was built upon and informed by and driven by the greatest crime against humanity, which is the genocide of the native people, and the chattel enslavement of millions of African peoples. So here we have this superstructure of human achievement, the superstructure of Western culture and its advancement, but built upon this infrastructure of the destruction of black life and the denigration of the African people of the world. It is the persistence of that underpinning into our current moment that has created this apparent contradiction of humanity moving forward on certain platforms and moving backwards on another, creating this extraordinary discrepancy in the model. So for example, the American nation rose up against the British, fought for its independence and won its independence and built the American nation. But building a progressive nation with wonderful philosophical constructs, but maintaining slavery as the basis of the construct 
but you cannot build a nation of freedom and democracy on the foundation of slavery. Thus, the American people had to go back to the battlefield to litigate the matter, to settle the matter a hundred years later. So here we are, again, another hundred plus years, trying to litigate the contradiction between freedom for a minority and absolute contemporary enslavement for a large number of people. It's, it's a continuation of that problematic. And Barbados was the center of it all because it started in Barbados. The model was a Caribbean model that was exported to North America, consolidated and expanded. And thus, from a Caribbean perspective, we saw George Floyd, we saw George as an absolute victim of an historical model that is obsolete and seeking deletion. Why Barbados? I mean, Barbados is known as beautiful Barbados and uh, the gem of the Caribbean Sea. But there's something about Barbados that made it the ideal place for its experiment in some ways with the, the, the first black slave society and the separation of the whites and blacks uh, on that island, almost like the microcosm for this larger experimentation with whiteness. The, the notion that you could accumulate massive wealth through the enslavement of people and the production of a commodity upon an institution called a plantation, that was actually a model that came across the Atlantic in a kind of westward journey. It started in the Canary Islands and the Azores. Then it came across to Brazil. And then from Brazil, it came to Barbados. Barbados is where it flourished. Along that trajectory, it flourished from Barbados then to Jamaica and South Carolina. So here you have this trajectory. The Azores, the Canary Islands, Portuguese to Brazil, from Brazil to Barbados, from Barbados to Jamaica, South Carolina, from South Carolina, it spreads across the American plain. But the Barbados leg of that journey was the leg that was most significant because here the English arrived and found an empty island. Arguably, Barbados was the only empty island in the Caribbean. When the British arrived there uh, in 1627, they wrote back to their king and said, we have found an empty island. There are no people, but there are houses everywhere. <laughs> because Barbados is a flat island. There was a large indigenous population, but the Spanish would come to Barbados and raid the island to carry away the indigenous people to work in the mines of Mexico. The Portuguese would come to Barbados and raid the island because they could not defend themselves on that terrain and raid the island, carry away the indigenous people to Brazil to work on the sugar plantations. So the island was the first island in the Caribbean that suffered complete and total genocide. Complete and total genocide was Barbados. So it was empty fertile and flat. And the British saw this opportunity to establish the sugar plantation, to bring in the African slaves and the English in Barbados who passed the first slave code 
became the richest colonizers of America through the production of sugar, which was the most lucrative commodity on the world market. And they became the quintessential businessmen of American colonization, the richest men in the hemisphere, built upon the most disgraceful destruction of human life and the creation of a chattel model in which African people for the first time were legally described as property, real estate, and non-human. So the Barbados leg of that movement of European colonization turned out to have been the critical moment that gave legitimacy to the model. And then the model was exported to other parts of the Americas. Um, you know, you've written about the, the Black Slave Code in the way that code was a legalization of that discriminatory practices and so on that the British carried out in Barbados. Uh, could you explain a little bit about the Black Slave Code, what was entailed in that document? Well, when, when the, the British came into the West Indies, into the Caribbean and started in Barbados to build out uh, a slave-based economy, there was some concern about the security of the investment. And bear in mind that you are importing Africans across the Atlantic and understand that this is a financial model. The model had to answer the question, can we secure on a sustainable basis a supply of African labor to the Caribbean? That becomes the basis of an economy and will allow us to export a commodity and make a profit. In other words, it had to pass the profitability test. So therefore, the British set up these slave trading companies to go out to West Africa, to carry out the mayhem in West Africa, to secure at least 2,000 Africans per year at a given price. And in the formative stages, they were paying like 30 pounds in the Caribbean, 30 pounds per head male, 28 pounds per head female. They hoped to get about seven years of labor out of them. And out of that seven years of labor at a unit price of 28 to 30 pounds, you had to show a profit on the balance sheet for the investment. So all of this now has to be institutionalized to make it functional. And one of the ways to institutionalize that was to say, when we purchase an African, that purchase has to be an asset over which we have all control. And that investment has to be transferable. In other words, I have to be able to transfer this asset to my family. I have to be able to use that asset for other commercial purposes. So the first point in the slave code was to say, when we make a purchase of an African, we want to establish under law that this asset is an investment, that this person is not a human being, that this person is now property and subject to all the laws of property. And we know the laws of property. What is property? You can sell it, you can buy it, you pay taxes on it, you can bequeath it, you can use it as collateral, you can mortgage it, uh, you can transfer it through generations, and you can do anything with it. So you now have to make the African such a commodity. 
So there was some doubt as to whether all of this was legal, and therefore the Barbados government in 1661 said, we are going to institutionalize this system so that the economy can function, so that the society can function. So we're building a new society from scratch, and we're building it on the notion that black people are not human, they're property with all the property rights, and that the society will be structured on the basis of Africans at the base whose task is to perform labor, and they would have no social identity in the society outside of their provision of labor. So they were non-human, not only in the sense of being an asset and property, they were non-human in terms of not having a right or any interest in contributing to a society. They were outside of society, simply defined as labor. And so the Barbados Slave Code was the first code that set out the relationships of slavery to economic development. And it started with the usual preamble. And whereas the people of Africa who have been brought hither to this island are a bloody, savage, and backward people, and not to be subject to the laws of Europeans, be it deemed, therefore, that from here on in, they shall be seen as property, chattel, real estate, and so on and so forth. And it set out the punishments to be attributed to them for each offense against a person of European background. This is the form of punishment. And it would say, for example, the slitting of the nose, the boiling in oil, the amputation of limbs, the forfeiture of their lives upon the persistence of this behavior. And this framework of terrorism was written into the laws. This was the Barbados achievement. That law was taken to Jamaica and implemented by the Jamaican parliament. It was taken to South Carolina and it was implemented by the assembly of South Carolina. And so the law that was framed to explain all of this became the template for all of English America. It became the template for South Carolina, for Virginia, for Pennsylvania. It became the template of how to treat black people in the Americas. That particular law also allowed the British, when slavery was abolished, to, to give reparations to the slave owners because they lost their property uh, when slavery was abolished, rather than give any reparations to slaves. And uh, I know you've written a lot about this and you worked through the CARICOM Reparations Commission calling for reparations for slavery. How do you think that's going right now? I mean, this is a, a huge item on the agenda. If we want to correct some of the wrongs that were done, the crimes against humanity that were committed uh, during the time of slavery. Well, let me tell you again about that journey. Barbados becomes the last colony in the British Empire to legislate the emancipation of the Africans. Because they said, this slavery is our creation, it's our model. And you are going to force us to abolish something that we have created and in which we are pleased in which we are very proud. This slavery economy made us the richest men in America. 
the British Parliament had to absolutely put their foot down and told the Barbados slave owners, you get rid of it or there will be consequences. They had to be forced to do it. And what was the model of the Emancipation Act? The British Emancipation Act said, we are taking away the property of citizens. And because we are taking away the property of citizens, we have to pay them property compensation. And this is why the slave owners receive reparations. So I have always said that the British Emancipation Act was the most racist act ever passed in the British Parliament. And why is that? The Emancipation Act is always celebrated as a high point in British uh, philosophy and British jurisprudence and British enlightenment. But on the contrary, it was the first time in the 300 years of slavery that the British Parliament actually agreed that black people were not human and were property. Because in order to get the legislation implemented, there had to be a prior agreement that these Africans were property and not human. And then that gave Parliament the authority to pay property compensation as the reparations. So it was the first time that the British government had actually agreed in law that these Africans were not human. So we fast forward today and CARICOM has said that the consequences of that Emancipation Act, in which people were defined as non-human and property, continues into the present time to create harm and suffering to the descendants of those emancipated. Because the philosophy of the Emancipation Act said that from here on in, the black people must be confined to a culture of labor. And institutional racism was used for the next hundred years to make sure that they did not go outside of that paradigm of labor. So emancipation was followed by racial apartheid, the systematic application of white supremacy in all of the institutions of civil society from the church to politics, to economy, so that as we enter the 20th century, the black people in the Caribbean were still trapped within the plantation model and therefore could not accumulate wealth, were subject to poverty, and the legacies of that have continued today. So CARICOM has said that for us, reparations is about development. It's about civil upliftment. It's about economic access. It's about psychological repair. And that Britain and Europe walked away from the, the mess they left in the Caribbean, leaving the Caribbean people to build democracies and civil societies and to build a humanity culture out of the rubble of colonialism. So what we have been doing in the Caribbean in the last 50 to 60 years, have been cleaning up on our own the colonial mess, public health, eradicating illiteracy, building uh, political institutions where people can exercise their franchise and make sure this is done properly. 
All of these things have been the heroic efforts of the people of the Caribbean without support from those who created the problem. So for us, reparations is about saying to the European powers, you have created this mess. We are cleaning up this mess. Come back and partner with us with economic development, with civil society institutions, so that you can discharge your accountability for the mess you have left behind in the Caribbean. And I think so far, the public of the Caribbean uh, has accepted that scenario. And they are now generally of the view that while we take responsibility for our own advancement, those who have created this mess that we are cleaning up have to be held to account and must come back, partner, and work with us on the frontier of economic growth and social development. Arthur Lewis did say in 1939 in his pamphlet, Labour in the West Indies, he said, Britain extracted 200 years of free labour from 20 million people to build up their modern industrial infrastructure to become one of the most competitive nations in the world. But this is a debt that they owe to the Caribbean and it's a debt they must pay. Yeah, I, you know, this, this is a, a subject that's receiving a lot of pushback, of course, from certain people. I read the piece by David Frum in The Atlantic, where he, you know, he sort of disparaged the notion of uh, finding a model to bridge that gap between the rich and the poor uh, through reparations. Um, and there are other people that have been pushing back as well on this, but I can't think of any better advocate for reparations than you are. And you have been placed in a position where you are chair of CARICOM's Reparation Commission. Uh, you've been a special advisor for the United Nations uh, Secretary General. Uh, you've been given by the US uh, the Dr. Martin Luther King Award from the US National Action Network. I think you're being placed in that position where you can actually carry this message to a large number of people. However, how can we place a cash value on the hundreds of years of forced servitude, on the crimes against humanity committed by colonial powers from 1600s to the late 1800s, when slavery was finally abolished, on the systemic racism that has endured in the US despite the worries of the Declaration of Independence and subsequent amendments to the Constitution? How can we place a cash value on all that suffering? Well, it is impossible and not necessary because what we can establish is that Western industrial modernity was built on that extraction of free labor from millions of African people. You cannot quantify that. Uh, and to quantify that would be an interesting academic exercise, but it is not necessary. What is important is to acknowledge the fundamental truth and to realize that you cannot go forward without some form of reparatory adjudication. There are families today in America, for example, that can identify the plunder that took place in relation to their own resources. There are families whose lands were taken away, 
whose villages were burnt with the support of the state, both at the federal and at the state level. There are millions of people who have suffered similar harm. All of those families must be compensated. Then you go to the bigger program. The race as a whole has suffered uh, the terrorism that has not allowed them to fulfill their potential in the economy and the society and so on. So you need a broad-based development strategy that speaks about community investment, housing, public health, education at all levels. So you need a macro framework. You need a macroeconomic program. But you also need microeconomic program where individuals, individual families, individual communities that can demonstrate the plunder and the extraction of their families, they want their property back, they want their lives back, and there has to be a program that articulates all of that. The value of the quantitative dimension of it would just be to inform how serious this program should be. It shouldn't be just a one-off uh, engagement. It has to be uh, engagement over a number of decades, that the number of decades of this program has to be sufficiently serious to create a legitimate equation with what would be the estimate that you call of the value of the loss of not only human life among the Black community, but the property of the Black people, the wages of the Black people, the economic advantages that Black people brought to the economy which they lost. So here were the people in many areas, whether in agriculture, uh, in culture, uh, in intellectualism, the universities, where they have tried to be competitive using their natural capacity and were prevented from developing an economy of intellectualism, an economy of agriculture, an economy in public health as doctors and nurses, an economy in sport and culture and kept on the margins. The program has to be sufficiently large to accommodate compensation for these efforts at being competitive. So we're looking, we're looking at a 50-year program of serious economic enfranchisement to compensate for the 80 meters in which we spent in chains in this 100-meter dash to the American dream. Yeah, and um, you know, it seems to me that the reparations, therefore, the vision of reparations is more than just about simply cash handouts to individuals, right? It's a, it's a long-term program, uh, social program, debt forgiveness maybe be part of it, free tuition maybe a part of it, land resources, adequate housing, subsidized home mortgages, etc. But there has to be a reallocation of money from the things that kept Black people down all these years. Uh, to, to, to help aid marginalized and poor black people to succeed in this, in this hundred yards dash, as you put it. And, you know, I'm, I've been following to what's going on with the, especially with the health situation given COVID-19 and Caribbean people are suffering uh, disproportionately from NCDs, non-communicable diseases, heart attacks and, and you know, hypertension, et cetera. Um, so is there a way to be able to put money into the healthcare system, for example, of Caribbean countries. 
Well, you know, um, the Caribbean is on the world's frontier, vanguard of what we call the, the, triple, the triple C effect. First, the pandemic of chronic diseases in these post-colonial societies. Then there is the climate change. These islands that are in the vanguard of rising sea levels, rising ocean temperatures, the loss of physical space on an annual basis, and projections for the disappearance of some islands in this Caribbean world in the next 30 to 40 years. And now the COVID-19. So the COVID-19 has arrived and has landed on top of the chronic disease pandemic and of course the issues around climate change. So it's a cocktail, it's a triple C cocktail that has placed the Caribbean in the context of an existential threat. So for us, these are not discourses. This is a real existential threat that the world has to sit up and pay attention to. And the reason there was, Andy, is because the Caribbean was the first moment in this hemisphere of modernity. This is where Columbus came across, integrated the Americas into Europe, integrated the Caribbean into Africa, so the Caribbean is the oldest part of the Americas in terms of that discourse of modernity. This is where it started in the Caribbean. And yet it is this place of beginning that is now the most vulnerable, which raises some very important questions. Now, in terms of the chronic diseases, take the criterion of chronic diseases, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, take that as a criterion and apply it to the world. The black people in the Caribbean are the sickest people in the world because we have the world's highest exposure to diabetes and hypertension. So the danger, of course, in this, and this is why it has gone uh, largely without a Western response, though I celebrate the work that PAHO has done that the World Health Organization has done, and people like Sir George Ali, who was one of the first intellectual pioneers of this research. We respect the work that they have done. But because we in the Caribbean, we have an image for being athletic. Usain Bolt, the fastest man in the world, Shelley Ann Fraser Price, the fastest woman in the world. And people look to the Caribbean and say, wow, those people are super athletes. They're the fastest people in the world. They play great baseball. They play great cricket. They were the best cricket in the world. Then we have the people like Bob Marley and Rihanna and all of these great artists. And people say, oh, those Caribbean people are so creative, so culturally competitive. But behind that image of athleticism is absolute public health meltdown, a pandemic of chronic disease illness the sickest people in the world. Now we have the COVID that has demonstrated the depth of poverty and marginalization in our democracies. So yes, we have democracies, but the democracies have been exposed by the pandemic to illustrate the marginalization of the majority, the poverty, the urban decay, the spread of ghettoization among the poor. It has revealed a horrendous 
social mess of inequality. And in terms of the climate change, almost every one of us on a Caribbean island can remember a beach we used to attend as children that has now disappeared, where the sea has reclaimed spaces that were once part of our upbringing. So the islands are shrinking because of rising sea levels. And we have built economies on tourism. What is the sustainability of tourism in the context of the disappearance of beaches and the threat to the marine environment and so on? So there is a cocktail that has undermined the development potential. So reparatory justice is to say, listen, these islands are trying to find their way in the modern world. They're trying to be competitive. They have succeeded in many industries and in tourism and finance and culture and the arts and sports, intellectual success of the people producing some of the finest intellectuals in the world. So here's a region that has overperformed, but is now facing an existential threat, largely because of how its history has evolved. And reparatory justice have said, let us put all of this together. As the reparations movement began to gain traction, many people have said, let us replace the reparations conversation with the climate change conversation. Let's shift the paradigm away from reparations, shift the paradigm to climate change. Our response was to demonstrate, on the contrary, the climate change issues strengthens the reparations issue, is a part of the reparations issue. Our response was to show how they are integrated and how one leads to another. So I think the movement at the moment is gaining ground because what the world is saying is that in modernity, cultures and people were stacked up vertically. You had the white people who were the minority on the planet, but they had access to the vast majority of the resources through military imperialism. Then there were the brown people, and then there were the black people, and somewhere at the base down there with the black people were the indigenous peoples who were seen as being dispensable. As we come to the 21st century, people are saying, no, no, we want a world that is horizontal, where all cultures and all races are deemed to be equal, all races and cultures are deemed to have their own diversity value, and the future of humanity is to respect that diversity, integrate it, and build a new matrix on which humanity can rise. Reparations is the key to that paradigm as the world's largest platform for the search of social justice, for the search for economic development with equality, for the search for material expansion with social security. So anyone who believes in the diversity and the equality and the, the search for interracial civility must engage, therefore, the reparatory justice program, either pedagogically or practically. So it is in a very good place, and it is the key to the future of humanity. I want to put it in the context of what's happening right now with the University of West Indies. Because the University of West Indies, uh, it seems to me, needs an injection of revenue to get out of its financial pickle that's in right now. Do you think that reparations can be used as a way of providing that kind of revenue 
that allows the University of Essex, which is doing relatively well, but allows it to thrive? Well, let us, let us begin, Andy, at the beginning. We have not had sustainable economic growth in our region now for 30 years. But we have been able to create a first-class university in the top 4% of the best universities in the world, in the top 4%, the number one in the Caribbean, the top 1% in Latin America. And everywhere I go, Andy, people say, how do you guys in the Caribbean maintain this first-class university? And I would always say the effort of our leaders, our political leaders, the brilliance of our professors and our administrators, the absolute brilliance of our students and our young people. So UWI is a special world, and we are very proud of what we have achieved, despite not having an economic infrastructure to give us all that we need. So yes, the future will depend upon how this region can become competitive in the global economy. It needs an injection of developmental support. This region that was the site of the world's first and greatest wealth extraction, no place in the world has suffered as much extraction as the Caribbean economy by some of the largest corporations in the world, from the issues of plantations all the way back to multinationals, there has to be a realization that there needs to be an injection of development capital in the Caribbean, that they have a right to it and that they deserve it. I have just completed a book entitled How Europe Underdeveloped the Caribbean. And I was able to secure for the first time the correspondence in which Caribbean leaders were calling for development support. When Bustamante and Mr. Siaga met with the British government in 1962 and laid it out to Britain, they said to the British government, you have owned this island for 307 years. And now we're entering independence. Here's our five-year plan. We want to build some factories in Jamaica. We want to shift to manufacturing. Give us some support with a five-year plan. They were chased away. The aggression with which they were chased away in 1962 is incredible. One of the British officials actually said, Jamaica is as ready for independence as a three-month-old baby is ready to change its own diaper. In the middle of the aggression towards the government of Jamaica, Edward Siaga, who was a junior minister in the Labour Party, he became outraged and said to the British government, you have exploited us for 300 years, and now we have schools. We have schools for only 20% of the children. We have running water for less than 20% of the households. And he went through this list of the problems facing Jamaica, the absolute crisis of Jamaica. And he said, all we want is a grant, a grant of support. Nope, go away. Now, compare with what happened in Eastern Asia and the East Indies. In 1950, Britain has colonies in the West Indies, colonies in the East Indies. What was then Ceylon, Burma, Sumatra, Malaysia, Singapore, they had India. So they had East Indies colonies, West Indies colonies. Both groups of colonies asked for development support. 
the West Indies, because of the history of racism, slavery, they told the West Indies, go away. The East Indies, they met in Ceylon and agreed to what became known as the Colombo Plan. The Colombo Plan was the framework whereby Britain, using its support with the US and Australia and Japan, developed a massive fund to transition the East Indies colonies into nation states and into industrial development. And the East Indies went off on their trajectory of economic growth, transformation, democracy. The West Indies were told, go away. And we were forced to do it on our own without any support. Look today, 60 years later, at where the West Indies has reached and where the East Indies have reached. And you will see that the fundamental difference is that the East Indies did receive that development plan that was denied the West Indies. And that is the immorality of this moment in history. And the reparatory justice program is calling for an acknowledgement of that. And the time has come to give the West Indies what the East Indies received 60 years ago. So they've come to this moment where the whole Caribbean is back to the moment. They've had 60 years of independence and they've done well. Jamaica, Trinidad, next year, celebrating 60 years. Barbados, Guyana, 55 years. So now we are looking at the second phase of independence. And we're asking, what should phase two look like? And we are saying in the reparations movement, phase two should begin with an acknowledgement that the Caribbean is owed a developmental plan by those who had extracted the wealth over the centuries. So we're calling upon the governments of Europe to come to the table and work with the Caribbean in phase two to build out the future of this region. And in that phase two, an investment in the University of the West Indies would be critical, would be absolutely critical so that the university can bring not only pride to the Caribbean people, as it does every day, but also to bring more practical economic development and social justice. It requires investments. I, I'm going to end with this question, which is much more personal <laughs> than uh, I, I wanted to, uh, to end with. But you have a title, Sir Hilary Beckles. And I'm going to ask this question of you in the same way I asked the question of Ade Adebayo. I said to him uh, in, a, in a recent uh, conversation where he was launching his book on the trial of Cecil John Rhodes. He had a Rhodes Scholarship. He accepted the Rhodes Scholarship even when his uncle was saying to him, that money comes dripped in blood of the African people. Because we all know Cecil, Cecil Rose was a major racist in, in Africa. He did a lot of damage to a lot of black people in Africa, but he did set aside some money uh, to help to bring education to some people in Africa. Ade became one of those people who got the money to go to Oxford and got his degree. But I asked him this question, don't you feel kind of bad about having your name forever linked with Cecil Rose? And I want to ask you the same question. You are Sir Hilary Beckles. 
we know what that sir represents. It gives you an opening to many, many fora, including the House of Lords, where you give a speech there that was tremendous, letting people realize what the British had done to people in Barbados. But your name will forever be linked now with the royal family's sir title. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm very glad you've asked me this question, Andy, because many of my friends across the global Pan-African world ask me this question every day. And it has to do with a fundamental misunderstanding. When Barbados became an independent nation, there was a debate about titles and honors. The Barbados government adjusted its constitution to create what is called a local indigenous knighthood and separated that knighthood from the imperial knighthood. So in fact, under the Barbados constitution, there are two knighthoods. The knighthood I receive is what is called the Knight of St. Andrew, which is an indigenous Barbados honor. The Knight of St. Michael and St. George is the British imperial honor. So those who are Knights of St. George and St. Michael receive the imperial honor. And those of us who receive the indigenous Barbados honor, the highest honor in the Barbados constitution is called the Knight of St. Andrew. The Barbados government again has adjusted its constitution and now has created another high national honor, which is called the freedom of Barbados, which our prime minister has just proposed through the parliament. So Barbados now has two national honors, the Knight of St. Andrew, and the freedom of Barbados. So when I receive the Knight of St. Andrew as the highest honor of my country, I felt uh, very proud about that. Had I been offered the Knight of St. George and St. Michael, which is that British honor where you go to Buckingham and bow before the queen, that is something altogether very different. I don't think I would have done that. So I hope that explanation stands while I could reject an imperial honor, I could not reject my country's own national honor. It's, it is unfortunate indeed that in the public imagination, there is no separation of the two because the view is to conflate them and to say night is night, honor is honor. But in fact, there are two very different forms of honor. Thank you for explaining that. I myself wasn't aware of the separation. But listen, it's been a pleasure uh, and an honor really to have you on the program. Um, we hope to do this again at some point and probably even elaborate further on what you're going to do in the next phase, I would say phase two of the Caribbean countries uh, development. And uh, so I hope to have you again on Black Talk. And I would definitely hope that many of our audience members would recognize what the Secretary General just recently said, uh, that racism is a global evil. And it's something that we need to confront, uh, something that we need to get rid of, expunge from our humanity, because there's no place for it in our humanity. So thank you very much, Hilary. Thank you, Andy. The honor is mine, and uh, it really has been a pleasure as always. Thank you. Now, let's hear from community members with stories from their personal experiences.
Hi, my name is Tom Davey. I was born into the world of apartheid in South Africa in 1954. The National Party had passed laws to govern every aspect of life, the right of association, who you could marry, where you could live, what jobs you could do, which benches you could sit on, where you could walk, what doors you could enter, and what schools you attended. If you were a six-year-old black child catching a bus to school in the morning and a bus for whites came along which had vacant seats, you could not catch that bus even if the one behind for blacks was full. Signs were displayed everywhere to remind people of the laws of division. It was a dictatorship of the folk, the people. School was the great determinant. There were schools for whites, blacks, Indians, Asians, and mixed race. White schools were further divided into sexes as well as English and Afrikaans-speaking schools. From grade one, if not earlier, the only children you mixed with were of the same race and the same language group. This was the genius of the system, perhaps unintentional. The two white groups only had adversarial contact on the sports field, primarily rugby. If we thought there was a problem with the world, we blamed the other. Formal schooling was unfettered discrimination. The next phase of education was conscription. All children at school wore uniforms. There were all kinds of subliminal messages in that. One strong message would be that military uniforms are more than acceptable. White boys' schools had one 45-minute period per week for compulsory cadets. In grade 11, military officers were given access to all boys in the school. They explained to us that now that we had identity cards, we were conscripts. If we were AWOL on the day of conscription, we would be arrested. Shortly after arriving in Canada, I was at an under-12 soccer game. The match winner on our team was a black child. The adult supporters on the other team proceeded to undermine his confidence with racist comments. They did not hold back. Adults from our team only heard about it later. Sadly, it was not the only time that this happened. Hard to believe that children's sport has that aspect to it. I had not expected it in Canada. There is no comparison between the harsh apartheid system and Canadian democracy. On the other hand, what is it that can spark such comments as heard and experienced by a 12-year-old on the soccer field? In Canada, in the absence of institutional racial barriers, how well do we know each other? Even if we have a racially diverse variety of friends, is that enough in today's world where racism is still a factor that perpetuates inequality? Not all whites in Canada are racist, just as not all were in South Africa. But in the heat of the moment, those spectators on the Canadian soccer field dropped the veneer of political correctness and resorted to racist comments to throw our player off his game. My name is Marvin Yitru. I'm in the arts faculty. 
How would you describe anti-Black racism? Um, I would describe anti-Black racism as omnipresent, global, pernicious, and hidden, especially in Canada. Yeah. How have you dealt with racism in your own life? Definitely more acutely, like growing up, like as a kid. So, you know, kids would make fun of, you know, me having darker skin, calling me blackie, or, you know, I even had a kid call me like monkey and stuff like that. Obviously those kind of things like affect you as a kid. Also just in like the world of like, just talking to people or dating, like always in the back of your mind, you have to wonder like, is this person, you know, racist or, you know, doesn't like talking to, or doesn't like black people, or, you know, it's always in the back of your mind. You have to worry about that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, even, yeah. Have you ever had to self-police your behavior? I've definitely remember telling myself or trying to act less aggressive just to make, uh, you know, other parties feel more comfortable in my presence or just, you know, act more meek than I might actually be again to make them more comfortable. What steps can we as a society take toward improving race relations for all? I think we have to be more outspoken about anti-Black racism, again, especially here in Canada, because it's so hidden and um, people are afraid to talk about it. And I think also, like in the U.S., we need to maybe have uh, uh, a more public conversation about reparations. Um, maybe not to the same extent as like the U.S., but there is definitely a history of racism in Canada and there are descendants of Black slaves in Canada. So, you know, the discussion about reparations in Canada would be, I think, very pertinent. That was Black Talk. Special thanks to our show's sponsor, KIAS, the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Alberta. Find out more at kias.ualberta.ca. Our show was co-hosted by Andy Knight and Zach Penda. Our show producer is Katrina Ingram. Technical production by Tom Merklinger. And I'm Nicola Barto. Our theme music is Fling It Up by Dyson Knight of the Bahamas. Graphic design by Anna Chakravorty. A huge thanks to our expert guests faculty and students. The University of Alberta acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory and respects the histories, languages, and cultures of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and all First Peoples of Canada, whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Find out more about Black Talk at blacktalk.ca. Bring a doom home time now And we ain't even trying to explain No, too late for you to hide now If you are there, you must see come to play Masquerade to the city Freedom to expose yourself is ecstasy So free your mind and leave we be Don't waste your time casting judgment on me Cause he don't wait, this is happening Ain't nobody stopping, wait, this is happening Ain't nobody stopping, wait, this is happening Ain't nobody stopping, wait, nobody stopping, wait Nobody This is Black Talk.